Welcome. Welcome to our our gathering here on our Wednesday night. Um, if you are if you are a guest, uh, we're we're a community who um, gets together just for some time of teaching, uh, worship, and some uh, just kind of hanging out time afterwards as well. So we'll spend a few minutes kind of toward the end. We've we've got some snacks and there's no high pressure or anything. Just invite you guys to be together and uh, get to know others. Um, w- one of our pieces that, that we do in supporting the various different ministries that reach out in very practical ways to our community is um, giving up tithes and offering. And I know a lot of you have come prepared to do that. Um, we appreciate the, the faithfulness with which um, you, you hold your time, your talent, your treasure, everything. So um, our ushers will be coming forward, and they'll be passing those. If you are a guest and you want to fill out a connection card in the seat back, you can, put, you can drop that in at that time, too. Um, and let me say one other thing, too. Uh, one, of the, one of the roles that we're called to play as believers is you know, the significance of gathering around others' prayer. Um, as you have prayer requests, please let us know. You know, that connection card, something we do as a staff every week is get around to those cards and pray for the very real needs that, that, that all of us have in significant ways. So um, thank you for just your vulnerability, I guess, in communicating in that way. Um, two years ago, I, I picked up a book. It, uh, it was entitled um, Moonwalking with Einstein. That's, that's one of those titles you can't forget, uh, and, and kind of for a good reason. Joshua Four is the author of it. The subtitle of the book, uh, Walking with Ein- or Moonwalking with Einstein, is The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. And uh, it's, it was a really fascinating read. Um, I think it came out in 2011. I, I think I picked it up in 2012. But the, uh, the book is a nonfiction book, and Joshua Four, the author, kind of approaches this in an in a experiential journalistic kind of way. And what he does is he, he wants to find out what's going on with people with what he would call enhanced memory. You know, these, these people who just have this amazing ability to retain tons of information. And so he finds himself at the, in this research at the 2005 uh, U.S. Memory Championship. And uh, it's really interesting. You know, he explains that in, this, in the book, one of the points that he makes is that even, even with all of the fantastic advancements of things like, you know, the printing press, Gutenberg, uh, or, or even today digital uh, storage for information, he says, man, there's so many great things that, that, that came out of that. But there, there was a societal fallout um, to that advancement in a lot of ways. This, this idea that... Um, I don't have to remember really important things anymore, right? Because um, I don't need to retain them in my mind because I can retain them on the shelf in a book. I can retain them in my phone. I can retain them on a computer. Um, I mean, just think about that yourself. Think about, say, the, the five closest friends or family members who, who, who have phones, okay? If I asked you right now to write down on a piece of paper without looking at somewhere, how many of you could write down their phone numbers? All five of them, Okay. Some, I guarantee you I can. You know why? Because I have a phone and I search and usually a picture pops up of their face and I just go, you know, I don't have to dial. I don't have to, you know, punch anything. It's just this idea that this kind of retrieval system ends up kind of uh, lowering our ability to retain information. And so in this book, Moonwalking with Einstein, Joshua foretells about a particular competition, this, this, this 2005 U.S. Memory Championship. And he writes this about these are the kinds of things 
that, that the contestants had to do. He said there were, there were five events. He said first the contestants had to learn by heart a five-line unpublished poem called The Tapestry of Me. Then second event, they were provided with 99 photographic headshots accompanied by the first and last names and given 15 minutes to memorize as many as possible. Then they had another 15 minutes to memorize a list of 300 random words. Five minutes to memorize a page of 1,000 random digits. And he goes on to say that's 25 lines with 40 numbers per line. And another five minutes to learn the order of a shuffled deck of playing cards. How many of you would say, man, I can't even remember like my, my two passwords that I have, you know, to log into my you know, bank account or whatever. I mean, this, this, is, this is phenomenal stuff. Um, these, these tricks of memory Joshua 4 talks about, these uh, practices are things that have been done for, for, for centuries. Even the ancient Romans took a lot of these sort of tricks or rules or practices and, and, and really whittled them down to a way that, that was easy to remember. Roman, um, Romans like Cicero and Quintilian. Uh, and this continued all the way even into the Middle Ages where there was this uh, appreciation for the idea of retaining huge amounts of, of, of material, memorizing entire books. And see, in all of these different memory practices, and Joshua 4 talks about uh, mind mapping, memory palaces, the method of Loki, all of these different practices, in all of them, the one thing they had in common is they were all memory practices in which the data, you know, the stuff you're trying to remember, books or numbers, you know, whatever it might be, a speech you're going to give, all the information, all the data is stored in your mind in a sequence of images, Okay? That later when you want to recall it, you want to bring all that you know, data back out, those images can be uh, decomposed back to that original idea, back to the original form. And so here's, here's kind of the big idea. You know, here's the kernel. Here's why we're talking about this. The kernel of that idea is that images, and of course when you connect images in sequence, you get a story, right? This relates to that, relates to that. You get a story when you do that. Anytime you do that, and you get these images, all of a sudden the information becomes sticky, right? You can retain it. Uh, yeah, I was thinking I should have called this Jesus' sticky stories, maybe, or something like that, but maybe not. Um, Jesus was the most significant, powerful teacher who's ever lived. I just mean by the influence that, that, that he's had. That's an unarguable fact. And so as we've been looking these past few weeks at Jesus taught mostly with this sticky kind of method of grabbing images, putting them together in a sequence, and having a story, and for a very good reason. Because then this content was sticky in people's minds and in their lives. And with the Holy Spirit working on it, it wasn't just information. It became something which actually got down inside them and through which God birthed new life into people through these parables. And so tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at a parable from uh, the book of Luke, if you have your Bibles with you. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, um, Luke chapter 18, and starting in verse 9, we'll read through verse 14. This is the parable that we oftentimes call the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, to read it in context, which we're just sort of focusing on one narrow piece of it, um, it is kind of a two-part parable. There's a parable that comes right before it. has to do with prayer. This also has to do with prayer. 
um, just to kind of understand the context. But um, tonight we're just going to again keep a focus on, on on the second one of the rich man and the and the tax collector. So starting at verse nine, we read this. And he, this is speaking of Jesus, also told this parable to some people. Now, this is kind of who the audience is. This is the reason for the parable. To some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, one of the things you always want to do anytime you're reading Scripture is to ask you some questions like, okay, who is he talking to? Who is the audience? What's kind of what... what brought this conversation up? What, what questions is he answering? What issues is he addressing? And so the audience in uh, verse 9, Luke tells us that the parable was directed towards certain people who thought a whole lot about themselves. And as they thought about others, it was sort of looking down their nose. It was with some contempt and maybe justifiably in terms of their, their life, lifestyle, what they've done. But this idea of seeing a huge separation between themselves and others. And the two characters Jesus places in this extended uh, series of images is a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, a Pharisee is a, is a religious leader, highly, highly respected in the community. We, we kind of have to peel off a lot of layers of, you know, we have, we have pejorative terms like, oh, that's very Pharisaical. We use it in a bad word. This, this is a culture where this is used as a good word, oftentimes. It, and it really was a good word. Okay. So this is a religious leader. This is someone who um, really comes from kind of a, a long line of a lot of honor. Pharisees were kind of descendants of, of these great um, nationalistic Jews, you know, part of the groups that, uh, who, 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 who threw off those who were occupying them, like way back in the book of Maccabees. This is, this, they're the descendants of that. They have a lot of honor in their culture. Um, deep, this guy's got deep respect. For God, deep respect for Scripture, for His Word. Now, Pharisees thought of the Old Testament kind of like this. Let me give you a picture. A Pharisee thought of the law, the Old Testament, as like a garden. Okay? And they said, you know what? A garden is so beautiful. The biggest danger with a garden is that you would step on it. You wouldn't see it. You would, you would mess it up. And, and, and God has designed it beautifully. So what we'll do, God's law is this great. We're going to build a fence around it. So that way you don't even get close to stepping on it. You don't even accidentally as you're treading through it. And so fences were the idea of we're going to make our own laws. If God says, here's what I want you to do, okay, I'm, I'm going to set it up here so I don't even get close to breaking that. Okay, is that, if that makes sense a little bit there. So listen to some of these, these fences that are, that are spoken of here. The Old Testament law, as you look at it, required fasting from all, all Jews one day a year. Okay, the great day 
of atonement. Now, Pharisees chose to actually fast 12 days a year. So this was a, they're going from one, you know, one is what God requires, we're doing 12. And again, not, not always out of this self-righteousness, it's this idea of saying, God, I'm not going to do bare minimum, okay? That's what law requires, bare minimum. I've got a heart for you, I'm going to do even more than that. Well, what we learned from this guy is this, this very pious man put a fence around the fence. He announces that he fasts two days a week, okay? Now, little math test here. How many times a year is that? How many days out of the year? Yeah, 52 weeks a year. 104 days. One's required. He says, I'm not going to do 12. I'm going to do 104 days out of the year that I'm going to fast. And then he even goes on to, you know, even in his tithing, he tithes everything. Law didn't require that. He's, he's going beyond in all areas. Now, the second character that Jesus places in the story is this, this tax collector. Now, tax collectors are, for a good reason, hated people. Okay? This is not like the IRS. Now, some of you would say, well, that's, I kind of feel a little bit like that toward the IRS at times. Um, th- this is much, much worse okay, than the IRS. Um, Israel was living in enemy-occupied Israel. Okay? They didn't have control of the government. Um, there was another government, the Romans, who came in, and they were living under a very cruel regime, a hard regime that was very cruel and very awful. And imagine yourself having a 40% tax when you were a peasant and you barely have enough to get by on your own. And these tax collectors are your people, Jews, who are turncoats working for the Romans, collecting money, so they're working for the bad guys. And what makes it worse is the way they get paid. Rome tells them, whatever you collect above and beyond our standard, our fence, you get to keep. So there's a fence there too. So they kind of built another fence. They okay, well, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot of thought to go see how much money would I like to make this year, <laughs> right? I mean, not many of us go, ah, I, don't, I don't need that much. So they, they would basically extort. This was extortion going on. And they're doing it not only for themselves, they're doing it for the enemy. The ones who are responsible for deaths in, in my family if I am a first century Palestinian Jew, okay? So for good reason... Tax collectors are hated because they're, they're turncoats. They have turned their back on Israel, and because God has a vision for Israel, they've turned their backs on God, clearly. They're working with the anti-God forces. And, and uh, here's the setting. We're told that it was the hour of prayer. Now, um, the only daily service at the temple uh, area was was the atonement offering. This took place two times during the day. It took, time, it took place at, at dawn, okay, about 6 in the morning, and then it took place at about 3 p.m. as well. So it happens twice a day. And the service began outside the sanctuary. If you could kind of picture the temple, this big building, and then you've got temple courts outside, and only you know, priests and stuff can go into certain parts of the temple. So it starts with everyone on the outside. And you've got the place where they actually sacrifice the, uh, the lamb. And so what would happen is um, the, the priest would sacrifice the lamb on this altar for the sins of Israel. Its blood would be sprinkled on that altar, um, following by this kind of elaborate ritual. And in the middle of these kind of public prayers, there would be a sound of, of a silver trumpet or several silver trumpets playing. They, they, this big crash of, of cymbals would go on, and then they would read a psalm. And the priest would then um, enter into the 
temple, into the outer courts of the temple, and he, he would offer incense. Now, as he's do, just as he starts that, the people on the outside start praying privately. I mean, they would still do it out loud, but they're praying you know, for themselves. They're praying for family. They're praying for God to do things. So as they're praying, the priest goes in and he's letting off the incense. And that was a picture of God, just like, our, just like the smoke is rising up into the sky, into the heavens, we hear that our prayers would be received by you. So it was a picture for them to see, God, you're hearing us. You're receiving our prayers. And at that point, when the priest would you know, depart, that's, that's when all the worshipers would go into this, into this component. In fact, we're told that many Jews who couldn't make it there at dawn and three, at those times at home, they would say, that's, that's when the incense is going up, that's when I'm going to pray, if they couldn't make it there. So they would even pray during, during those hours. And so the context, here's what's important for us to see, to get the point of what Jesus is getting at in this parable. The context or the settings that this is um, around which Jesus is kind of weaving this story, it, it, it clues us in to the big idea here. They were going up to the temple for this twice a day atonement sacrifice. Okay? That, that was the impetus of them being there. And that's a fictitious story he's telling. Okay? But the reason they're there, it has to do with sacrifice and atonement. Atonement has this idea of what do I need to do to be okay with you? What do I need to do to be acceptable? Okay? Acceptance happens in our, our culture all the time. What do I have to do to get into the school? I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a young guy who's applying for a master's degree, and he's, he's working on all these things in order to be acceptable for, you know, for a grad school. And he asked me to you know, write a letter of recommendation, and I'm saying, this guy's acceptable. He's, he's done something or many things to be acceptable to your institution, and you would benefit from having him. Okay, so that's this idea. How am I acceptable to, to God, to others, to myself? And so atonement means on what basis am I acceptable to God? What makes me a suitable? We do a lot that, after that, don't we? What, what makes me good enough? What, what makes me up to standards? And we all have different ideas for what that looks like. So, the real contrast that Jesus wants to make between these two men, what we see here, and this is why he kind of switches the roles of them, he says it has nothing to do with what you think. You might think it has to do, or at least these outward trappings of who you are and what you do and your lifestyle and stuff, you might think, oh, that's probably a pretty good clue as to are they acceptable? And he goes, let me turn it around so drastically so that your categories are messed up, and let's relook at the question. Because remember, parables... Are, are stealing past the watchful dragons, are offenses of the heart. Oh, yeah, I know that. And so I don't rethink about it. He goes, I want you to rethink about it. And so he kind of blows their categories. And so to get past these people's wrong assumptions about what it is that, that makes us acceptable, acceptable um, that it has nothing to do with these outward pieces. So look for a second at the posture of the two men, because this kind of clues us in here. Verse 11 in the NIV, in the NIV reads this. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. Now, that's a little misleading. Um, a lot of English translations will say, well, it, first of all, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. He's not praying to himself, but it's this idea that he's praying by himself is probably a better way to put it. He is, he is off in a place focused on himself, but he's, he's separated from everyone else is the big idea here. He has sort of stepped out from the common crowd in a symbolic way of saying, I'm not even, I'm not even like those guys. 
you know, I want, I want to put myself out there. I want to stand out in the crowd. I want to be something different. And that's how he really viewed himself. Um, and that's contrasted with this other guy. Now, this man is standing apart from the crowd, too, but differently. We're told he's standing kind of back, further back. He's not putting himself forward. He's putting himself further back. He didn't even think that he was worthy to be there. The language that is used in verse 13 is uh, standing some distance away, was even unwilling, it says, to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest. Now, acceptable posture in the temple during prayer was like this. You would have your head down and you would have your arms over your chest. And this was a symbol of what a servant would do before a master. Just like a servant would stand before a master, the Jews said, that's how we stand before God. Because we want God to know that, that He is our master, He's our king, He's our God. And so I stand in a, in a posture of humility before the master of the universe. So they stood like this. And what we see in this situation is that the tax collector is so distraught over just the deep brokenness in his life, the, the infectious nature that, that, that sin has been in his heart, that he beats his chest. Now, culturally, that just sounds weird. I mean, it sounds like Tarzan to me. But to this culture, that, that, that meant something else. Typically in the Middle East, even, even today, occasionally, not all the time, occasionally um, women at a, at a particularly, say, um, tragic funeral will, will beat their chest. And um, this is done in a way that's not... Sorry, I just lost my notes. Let me make sure I'm on the right page. I'm sorry. Fortunately, you know what? When I first came to church here, this is like 10 years ago. You guys remember Doug Miller? Doug Miller, you know, he's down at... You don't remember Doug Miller. Doug Miller was one of our pastors on staff. He's now down at, um, at Castle Rock. And um, I was talking to him one time, and I said, so like, what, you know, what kind of advice would you give me? And uh, he said, man, the most important thing in the world I ever tell you, he said, put page numbers on your notes. And I was like, that's it? You're worthless. I, I thought he was going to give me some big spiritual talk or something. And uh, he goes, man, one time I dropped my notes and I just, I had to scrap it and just shut down. <laughs> so I put page numbers on my notes, thankfully. Um, so this tax collector, he's, he's in this place to where he's, he's doing something culturally would just be, uh, be embarrassing. It, it would be something that, that would just, it wouldn't, there'd be no dignity to it, okay? He's acting in a way that's completely undignified. But here's really the shocking part. Jesus is saying there's only one thing that will keep even the best person, the most holy person, you know, our, you know someone who is you know, PC and they, and they recycle and they're thoughtful of other people. I, I mean, the best person you can imagine. There's only one thing that will keep them out of right relationship with God. And that's this word right here. pride. That's the only thing. And he says, you could add whatever you want. You could be awesome. You could be doing tons of things, getting tons of it right. You could get it all right. You get one thing wrong, this, and it's, it's all for naught. It's nothing. 
C.S. Lewis in, in uh, his kind of magnum opus, this is like his, his classic book, it's, it's, it's probably my favorite book, Mere Christianity, has a chapter on pride, and he calls it the great sin. That's what he calls the chapter, and that's what he calls pride. Um, which is probably the, the best and the worst chapter I've ever read on pride. Best because it's true, and worst because it's painful. It's like convicting. I mean, you read it, and it's like, oh, man, I'm so, I didn't realize I was so prideful. Because it's, it's, it's like looking into a mirror, and you realize, oh, man, I'm, I'm way worse than I thought I was in this area of pride. And Lewis rightly points out, that, that there has always been this idea in the Christian church and the Christian teaching that the greatest evil that exists, the, the worst possible sin, is pride. It's the worst of all. And conversely, humility is the highest virtue. I would even go so far as to say, if you were to look at what, what is the disposition of the heart that is at the center of the gospel, I think it's this. This is, this is the very center of it all. I was having a, a conversation with someone just uh, before service, and, and we were kind of talking about it and saying, man, this, this is so easy to mess up. Like, you know, it's understanding, like, what is real humility or what's pride and that sort of thing. And, and I was kind of thinking, you know, I, I wonder if that's not because if this is the center of what the gospel is or if this is the center of what rebellion is, maybe the enemy really wants us to get this wrong. <laughs> right? We have to be so careful with this. It's such a uh, constitutional part of who we are, our relationship with God, the gospel. Um, let, me, let me read for you a statement by, by C.S. Lewis. He writes this. Um, He's speaking of pride. He says, it is, one, it is the one vice which no man in the world is free, which every man in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, he says except Christians, ever imagine they are guilty themselves. Right? It's, the, it's the thing that he says, there is, there is no fault which makes a man more unpopular than, than being prideful, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. Boy, I think that's true. He goes on to say, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, you know, fill in the blank, worst sin you can imagine. He said, uh, and all of that, these are mere flea bites in comparison. He says, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, and it is the complete anti-God state of mind. Wow. That's a huge claim. But the Bible paints a picture of th this really being the case. And it's interesting that the, the one thing that we least recognize in ourselves, you ever thought about this? God says is the biggest problem. Isn't that kind of a scary situation? <laughs> the biggest obstacle to me coming to God, God says you are most blind to. Well, that would make sense if it's the deepest sin because sin is blinding, right? Now, why is this? Because, see, pride does to the soul a couple different things. Number one, it destroys my relationships this way. It destroys my relationships with others. Secondly, pr 
pride uh, locks me into myself in such a way that it kind of destroys, if, if I can use this term, my, my relationship with myself, self-understanding, who I am, freedom. Maybe I'll just use you know, some of those words. And finally, this idea that it keeps me immune to the creative, redemptive, restoring love of God. So if that's the case, if, if these are the most important in my relationship with others, you know, being an integrated self and my relationship with God, if this is the seed that can destroy them all, man, this sucker's bad. <laughs> this thing's scary. But conversely, this other piece, man, this is how it's going to all work. So let's look at kind of those three, okay? My relationship with, with others first. Um, let me read for you again another quote by Lewis because he just he puts it so well. Lewis says, if you want to find out, this is kind of a cool little test, Okay, how prideful are you? Um, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself a question. Here's this question. How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in me or patronize me or show off? And see, the re- he goes on to say, the, the reason that's the test is because each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. See, it's because I wanted to be the center of attention at you know some you know party I was at that I'm so bothered that that person was the center of attention, right? Um, it's because I really want my work, you know, you know things that I do, the project I work on, because I want it to be praised that I'm so bothered that this person's work, this project they did, receives all of this praise and all of this admiration from the boss or from coworkers. Um, pride only works, and this is the point, pride only works by comparison. Lewis writes this, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than you. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about, Lewis writes. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So, so pride turns me inward on myself and kind of eats away at um, any, any sort of authentic ability I have to, to love. And by that, I don't mean feeling. I, no, the biblical definition of love is willing the good of another, wanting their best, wanting their good. It, it eats away at my ability to will the good of others in my life. Well, um, but it also does self. Okay, there's also, you know, the self-corruption piece. Um, pride is a cruel master that will imprison you and me. Um, think, think about some area of your life for a second, okay? Just think about this. Think about some area of your life that if you were going to be prideful, that would probably be the area that, that you would be, um, you know, prideful about. It could be success. Um, maybe it's beauty. Uh, maybe it's it's your reputation, maybe it's your social standing. I mean, whatever your education, you know, whatever it might be. What what would be the area that if you were going to be prideful, that that would probably you know be the area. Now now think about this. What what happened if you lost that area? What happened if that area became unstable all of a sudden? 
What, what happened if all of a sudden, you know, you know maybe it's education. What, 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 if, what if you were exposed as not being that intelligent? See, because whatever it is that, that you're really prideful about, you will live in fear that it'll either be gone, it'll be taken away, or fear that you'll be exposed to not really be on, on top of your game, whatever it is that, that, that you really care about. And so you'll live in that fear. You will have anxiety. You will find yourself during your day thinking about that one thing, wondering, wait, how did I come off to that person? Was I perceived as this? Was I perceived as successful or beautiful or intelligent? You know, whatever it is, that's one of those tests to know, okay, that's probably an area. But again, you end up being trapped because you're not living just sort of enjoying and free. Lewis says at one point, he says, um, you know, oftentimes we think of humble people as these kind of greasy, smarmy sort of, you know, oh, no, it's not me, you know, not me, that sort of thing. And he goes, that's not a humble person. He said, if you ever meet a humble person, you won't know it. All you'll think is, man, that person was fun to talk to and they seem to sure enjoy life. Isn't that kind of cool? He says, that's, that's what you find out, because they're not talking about themselves. They're talking about you, and they're enjoying life. It's not this like, no, 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 not me. Not me. Not me. No, that's not humility. He says, they're just not even thinking about it. And he says, man, I wish I'd gotten further with getting rid of pride, because if so, he said, I could tell you what it feels like. He said, but when I've experienced moments of forgetting about myself, it's like, it's like a man out in the desert getting a cold drink of water. To be just done with putting on airs and this idea of self and wanting to be perceived as all these different things that, that I am prideful about in my life. So it destroys this way. It destroys this way because there's no real freedom. I just live in this self-imposed prison. I'm constantly guarding and worrying and having anxiety about being exposed or losing that thing I'm prideful about. But thirdly and most significantly and importantly... Pride destroys, or, 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 or as I said earlier, keeps me immune from, from God, from him getting through to me. Now, the question is often asked this, I, I mean, you've probably thought this before, is why does God require humility from you? You ever kind of wondered that? Is it, is it because he's, you know, is, it, is he worried about his dignity? Meaning, basically, is God prideful? And so he just, he wants us to be humble because he's, he's such, you know, the big deal. Um, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think God is worried about his dignity at all. And what assures me of that is the cross. That I see a God who steps from his throne and all of his glory, leaves it behind, and enters this, this lowly, sad, peasant life. And the bookends of his life are a little baby wrapped in cloth strips and then wrapping a servant's cloth around him right before he dies. I mean, that's not the God, that's not a God who's worried about his dignity in any way. So why does he require humility? Why does he want that? Here's what I would say. Here's, here's the point of life, okay? Let me give you the, here's the meaning of life. <laughs> here's the point of life. Um, God wants you to know him, and he wants to give himself to you. That's it. God wants you to know him, and he wants to give himself to you. And when I say God wants to give himself to you, I mean his real self. He wants to give his actual self. I don't mean some idea that I've concocted in my mind of what I wish God were like. I don't mean some idea that you've dreamed up as to what you, know, you would want God to be like. The real, actual master of the universe wants to give himself to you. He wants you to know him. 
But here's the problem. And Lewis said this way. In God, meaning when you meet the actual, the real deal, the real God, in God you come up against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. You've, you've got no corners on him. <laughs> he, he is in every way superior to you. Therefore, Lewis says, unless you know God as that, I mean the real God, and therefore you know yourself in comparison as nothing, you don't know God at all. You know a fake God. You know an idea that you've dreamed up, but you don't know the real master of the universe. And as long as you are proud, Lewis says, you cannot know God. I love this language. He says, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, guess what? He can't see something above you. But what if God is in every way above you? What if God is in every way superior? A proud person has, has an inability to look up. They cannot. They're, they're unable to come in contact with the real God. So God is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. This moment of coming in contact with the real God. And we have those windows, don't we? Maybe it's in, a, it's in a conversation with someone else. Maybe it's reading scripture. Maybe it's in a song. We have these moments where we come in contact with God. And it's true humility. It's like I kind of forget myself when I'm lost in him. And I, I kept, oh, that, that must be sort of what it's like. He's trying to make you capable of receiving love from an infinite being himself. So let me ask one question kind of as we, as we start to wrap up here. How humble... How humble do you have to be in order to get the real God? I think what Luke is telling us, taking Jesus' words, is you have to be humble as a tax collector beating his chest. What's really interesting is that in the Bible, there's only, there's only one other place that references people beating their chests in the Bible. It's, it's mentioned by the same author, Luke, so he had it in mind. It's a few chapters later, and it's, it's at the cross. The people who are there who, who are so distraught by, by what they have seen and, and recognizing that this happened in order to make me acceptable in some way. At the end of the day, we're told, when Jesus died, it said they, they beat their chests. And assumably this is men and women in Luke chapter 23. And here's the point that I think Luke is making. If it requires a scene as, as huge, as distressing as the crucifixion of Jesus to cause men and women to beat their chests, then this tax collector has more clarity than even, oh, I don't know, a Pharisee. He has more clarity into the heart of God into what God wants, into who God is, into God's nature. He has more clarity. This guy who is so screwed up and broken and, and, and has hurt people in his life, he has more clarity because he's getting the only thing that really matters at the center right. You can miss it by a million miles. You can get everything right and get one thing wrong and miss it by a million miles, Jesus is saying. And he's saying we're all, every one of us is in danger of that at, at, at moments in our life. Where am I at on pride right now? What's going on in my heart? And look at what the tax collector says as he, 
engages in this you know, bizarre, extraordinary act of beating his chest. He says, God, be merciful to me. Now, there's something that's a little almost not, not, not misleading about this, but um, most English translations report the guy's words as, God, be, be merciful to me. But the word that's used is not just the general word for mercy. It's, it's a word which, which means um, make an atonement. So more literally, what he's saying is, oh God, make an atonement for me. Because I can't. Make a payment for me. Make me make, you make me right by what you're doing, your stuff. Because what's so interesting here is, think about this, both guys, you got the Pharisee, you got the tax collector. They're both watching the exact same thing, okay? Both of them are standing here. They're both standing afar off, different directions. They've both seen uh, a, a lamb be sacrificed. They've both seen the blood be sprinkled on the altar. They've both heard these trumpets blare out, these silver trumpets. They've both heard the crash of cymbals. They've both heard a psalm being read. They both see the priest go into the temple and light the incense. They both see him reappear, the trumpet sounding again. They both hear him say, atonement has been made. Blood has been shed. They both hear the choir sing. They hear everyone sing. But only the tax collector, who is distraught and beating his chest, stands afar off and cries still. And this is weird. And this is what would stand out. Oh, Lord, make an atonement for me. See, Jesus then declares, I tell you, this man went away accepted, justified, rather than the other. See, what the tax collector knows is that no animal blood, no lamb or anything like that can atone for his sins. He's the one Jesus gives a ruling to, and he says, he's right, you're right, and you've got it right, and you're right with me. See, only humility will allow you and me to have the scales from our eyes fall off and to see that after everything I do in life, after all the religious efforts, after coming to church, you know, three weekends out of four, and I come on Wednesdays and I put my kids in this and I pray at night with them, after all the religious activities I do, after, after all the accomplishments of education and vocation, after all the thing, everything that I do to be acceptable to you and to others, after all of those things, there's nothing that will make me righteous. Nothing. His righteousness, Christ's righteousness, make an atonement for me. That is the only answer. And to the degree that, that I have self-righteousness in me, my view of myself is going to be skewed, and I won't have perspective even of who I am. I will not be an integrated, holistic being. To the degree that that self-righteousness is eating away at me, my relationships are going to be just broken. And to the degree that self-righteousness is in me, most importantly, I will have a false God of my own making, one I've created, but I'll never come in contact with the true God, the God for whom I was made to have that meeting. You know, It's like the greatest romance connection. You've, you, know, you watch movies and those two people meet at the end and it's like what they've been... Remember the movie Sleepless in Seattle? Remember that movie? Remember at the end... They finally meet after hearing calls and all this stuff, and they finally meet, and you're just kind of like, yeah, that's it. 
You were made for a meeting with God. But the only way you can do it, the only way I can do it, is if I live here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we recognize the fact that it is a terrible thing to be caught in the, in the self-imposed prison, the clutches of pride. And yet, when we're, when we're dead honest with ourselves, when we're dead honest with you, God, we recognize that there is not a person in this room who does not suffer from this horrible disease. And it's the worst disease out there. It's the most destructive thing. And yet, you tell us, as the great physician, that we're all sick, that we all have and carry this disease. And it has the potential to, to wipe away our lives. And yet you have offered yourself, your righteousness, to make us acceptable to ourselves, to others, most importantly to you. And Father, I pray for both the person who, who would be here maybe and, and who would say, you know, I, I haven't really done this thing yet. I, don't, um, I wouldn't say I have a relationship with Jesus. God, may, may you apply this to their lives. May they come in contact with the true, actual God in a window. I pray for those who, who are walking with you. Father, that, that you would point out those areas in life which are still reserved, which are still uh, unredeemed by you, and, and over which they're, they're just soaking with pride. And maybe completely unaware to us, would you point out those areas in our life, God? Not, not just so that we can have one more thing checked off and then we can feel good about, oh, I don't have pride in that area of my life, but so that we can meet you that we can know you because that's how we're whole. And Father, I thank you that as, that as the words of the prayer listed in our bulletin says, and may this stick with us as we go. May this be the, the, the meditation of our heart this week, the reality that even though we are more broken and sinful in ourselves than we ever dared believe, that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the message that will change our lives individually and change our world and our entire cosmos. And that's what we stake our whole lives on, God. We thank you for what you have done, what you are continuing to do. Thank you for the gift of your son, the empowerment of your spirit, God. As we go now, would you help us to live lives that, that spill over the humble graciousness of our God to people around us? For your glory, God, and we pray this in your son's powerful name. Amen. Amen. Hey, as I said, um, we've got just kind of a time of hanging out, time of fellowship. Um, and uh, if you're, I know some of you guys are introverts and that scares you. Just go get a cookie and get on your phone. That's like the universal sign of don't bother me and we won't bother you. But hopefully you guys will stick around. Our prayer team is going to be up front. We would love to pray with you guys. Love you. Have a, have a great rest of your week. Thanks for being here.